All right, well, I'm super gl uh, glad we finally made this happen after uh, I don't know, maybe two months, I'd say, I've yeah. been in Melbourne. But I, yeah. I really appreciate um, you being so patient and uh, taking the time out for me, Kate. So, yeah, um, do you want to do a bit of an intro about what it is you do and um, maybe like a start to finish on your journey with uh, Sea Shepherd, Coast Guard and, and now Daughters of the Deep? Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I, um, my name's Kate. I'm from the UK and I am professionally a speech pathologist and have been doing that for the last 10 years or so. But uh, since I moved to Melbourne in 2014, I've been on a bit of a sort of conservation and ocean-based path. So that started by me joining Sea Shepherd, I think, in 2015, somewhere around there. Um just because uh, they actually were just screening a documentary down near me in Williamstown and I, I went down there and I met some of the volunteers there and they said, oh, you know, we do all this fundraising and you're welcome to come and join us. And so I signed up and started doing some land-based fundraising with those guys and learned more, really quickly learned a lot about, you know, the state of the oceans and environmentalism and all these things that I had been aware of, but maybe not to the same extent until I joined Sea Shepherd. And then that just kind of snowballed until I was taking time off work to go and help out on the ships when they were in dock. And then eventually actually asked my boss if I could take a year out and go and crew at Sea Shepherd offshore. Um, so I did that in 2016. I went to Antarctica on my first campaign and straight after that went to Mexico. And every year now have been taking a couple of months out to go overseas to crew with Sea Shepherd since then, which has been amazing. Mm. Um, and then at the end of my first campaign, I came back to Melbourne and joined the Coast Guard because I wanted to continue my um, sort of boat handling skills and, and get some marine qualifications. So um, they're an amazing voluntary organization uh, who you can gain a lot of marine experience and qualifications with uh, for free. So that was a really good chance to kind of practice my skills and also get involved in more community-based voluntary work, supporting the community and, you know, people out in the bay getting into trouble will go and help them. Um, and then this year, I also, with a couple of friends, launched a charity that is uh, looking at supporting women getting into marine careers. So it's called Daughters of the Deep, and we've been going for about six months. So we're still very young, um, but that's been another really interesting kind of uh, project and a really great resource so far and it seems to be kind of gathering a bit of steam and getting more interest and we're starting to get more um sponsorships off the ground so yeah it's been a it's been interesting trying out all these different things over the last few years <laughs> busy but good <laughs> yeah it's amazing I, just listening to like this sort of timeline of events it's it seems like such a natural progression because you've obviously got the passion and you started with like you said just doing land-based uh, fundraising and volunteering and you must have just kept that inkling and that hunger for for wanting to know more and wanting to do more and then that progressed from into the Sea Shepherd volunteering and Antarctica and Mexico and yeah I think it was such a great yeah. great idea to come back and join the Coast Guard because like you said it's a it's, it's a volunteer organization a community organization and you, then you're getting you know the bits of paper and the practical skills that you can carry then back into Sea Shepherd or even Daughters of the Deep so that's what a, what a great timeline, honestly, and what a, <laughs> a really good build-up. Um, yeah, they all link together really well, which yeah. is also nice. And um, I'm yeah. very fortunate, and I'm, I'm always aware whenever people ask me about how I do this, like I am aware that I'm extremely lucky to have, fundamentally, to have a supportive boss 
um, mm-hmm. who allows me the time to go and do these things because without their support, you know, I would be um, struggling to find the time to fit all these things in. So I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky and I realize how lucky I am to have, have that as a basis yeah. from which I can like kind of have that work-life balance between my career and my voluntary passions. So yeah, I'm very fortunate in that respect. Was it sort of a, a premeditated approach or did it, did things just happen naturally? Like did, was your optimism what sort of put you in these positions, do you think? Like timing or yeah, like did you sort of try and map it out? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I think I have always known that I've had a sort of a passion for the oceans. Um, like I started dive, I started traveling when I was quite young and I learned to dive, became a scuba dive master. And I think that's, that's always been something that I've been interested in. Um, I didn't think that I would ever take it as far as I have in terms of mm-hmm. career with Sea Shepherd or like taking exams with Coast Guard. But I think like having, yeah, having that kind of career that I know is stable, that is able to fund me to be able to go off and do all these voluntary things. I remember meeting somebody years ago. Um, He was a, as well, I was traveling. He was a landscape uh, outdoor sort of gardener from the UK. He had his own business, but he shut down for three months every year and traveled, you know, in the winter in the UK when it, when there wasn't really much to be done. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, oh God, that's the dream, isn't it? Like work for nine months of the year and then travel for three and Mm -hmm. somehow I've ended up in a situation where I have that plus the adventure of of going off with Sea Shepherd so yeah it was something that was always a goal but it just sort of happened without me really necessarily thinking too much about it like it just sort of fell into place which so yeah very lucky to be in that situation now. Totally no I know exactly what you mean there's sometimes you cross paths with people in life who completely change your perspective and give you a new insight into what is is possible and the flexibility of you can keep the nine to five plus you can be a weekend warrior plus you can still make holidays work and I think we're living in a a day and age now where um, people are solving problems to you know to their the balance of life and yeah that's a great example of someone who takes three months off of the year yeah that's awesome yeah do you think um your love with the ocean first started here in Australia or obviously you said you were scuba diving before that or what really was your your calling to to want to volunteer with the ocean yeah interesting i think um so i feel like i've always had a passion for the ocean which is weird because i grew up in a county that doesn't have a lot of beach you know and in the uk i didn't really go abroad when i was a child but in those summer holidays we would go to to beachy holidays and i would spend time with my dad going through rock pools and looking at ocean creatures and i always felt like i loved the oceans i was Mm -hmm. you know a passionate swimmer and that kind of stuff and then when i started traveling and i was diving i was like yeah this is you know i feel so comfortable in this environment and i love all these creatures but the the kind of activism side of it wasn't something i really had uh had in my sight until i you know, joined Sea Shepherd and started watching some documentaries and all these things that I sort of had a vague idea about. I suddenly got some really sort of stark truths around, Mm -hmm. you know, the industrial fishing industry and the human trafficking that's happening within that. And like all of these atrocities that are happening that Mm -hmm. you sort of are vaguely aware about. And, you know, it just joined a lot of dots to me. Like, why am I still eating fish when I love to go diving? You know, all of those things kind of all clicked into place. And then that put me on a path into activism and, and that kind of voluntary outlook, which has led into yeah, Daughters of the Deep and Coast Guard and everything else. So 
I think the passion for the oceans was always there, but it was Sea Shepherd that sort of galvanized it into like, this needs to be more of a direct action mm-hmm. approach rather than a appreciating when I go diving, how cool it looks, you know? Like, yeah. I think that was the shift, yeah. You'd sort of been building up this, um, this tinderbox of love and appreciation for the ocean and maybe the Sea Shepherd was a spark that set it off. So to Correct. Speak. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you did your first action with the Sea Shepherd, <clears throat> sorry, pardon me, how did that come about? So did they approach you and say, hey, we want you to go overseas with us and this is going to be your role? So like, how did that first start and, yeah. and what did it look like for you? Yeah, so it's interesting. So anyone can apply to go and crew offshore with Sea Shepherd. Um, you just jump on their web pages. There's two different halves of the organization, the Sea Shepherd Global and the Sea Shepherd Conservation, mm-hmm. and um, you just put your application in. But I've definitely heard of people who'd applied and they'd just, you know, been waiting for ages and ages. I think that they often will prioritize people that they know are already quite dedicated to the cause. So I had all of that experience with Sea Shepherd. Um, my coordinator for the onshore volunteers here in Melbourne wrote me a reference. But I, but I was just fortunate that also some of the ships would dock in Williamstown, which is where our main meeting place is. Perfect, so yeah. I kind of like had made friends with some of the crew and then um, we're just sort of hanging around. And then I said, can I help out? And uh, ended up working in the engine rooms, uh, just in <laughs> just cleaning basically <laughs> and doing stock takes. Because obviously I don't know anything about marine engineering, um, but just showing that passion and that, and that genuine interest in whatever capacity to help out with the crew. So then when they were looking for people to apply for the campaign, myself and my friend Sarah, we were both in the same position. We've been on shores for a while. We've been helping out in the engine room. And when we put our applications in, I think it got fast tracked, you know? So we just got the call quite quickly, yet we need some crew. Um, so we, I think that's how we ended up getting in, in quite fast. And, yeah. and obviously some positions you need experience. I didn't have any maritime experience at that point other than being a scuba diver. Um, so obviously if you want to work in the bridge, you have to have uh, maritime qualifications but the deck crew generally can be completely unskilled so outside of you know having been on dive boats I had no experience but they took us in as deck crew um, and then they train you so we spent three months living on the boat in dock um, and we got trained in sort of all the procedures the deck crew would need like launching and retrieving the small boats and operating the crane and all that kind of stuff um, and then yeah next minute we were just uh setting sail for antarctica it was kind of a whirlwind to be honest it all happened in the space of a few months you know i got the green light from work which was a huge one would have been a barrier to a lot of people um but luckily they were like yep that's fine off you go <laughs> see you in a year and um yeah and it just all started from there really it's quite that's... odd but fantastic <laughs> no i think um i think you're not giving yourself enough credit to be for putting in the hard yards to be honest no i don't think many people would be um, so selfless as to give their time for cleaning the boats and volunteering for three months without, you know, having the, you know, like the carrot and stick, you know, people need yeah. to have the need to have the reward at the end. But it seems like you were already invested in the program before you knew that it was going to have any anything for fruition. So to to put in the effort before you knew that something was going to come for it to be able to go on a campaign is really, really interesting to me as well. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's really kind, I guess. I hadn't thought about it that, but but yeah, I think like uh, when you're, you know, when you're so invested in in something that you're interested in, then it doesn't really matter, you know, what 
what what it is that you're doing even if just cleaning toilets like you 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 just want to help and and i think that the onshore part of sea shepherd definitely doesn't get enough recognition because without the fundraising on land we wouldn't be able to go to sea we wouldn't that that fuels all of our ships you know that's the the core money coming in to be able to do the campaign so i think like uh you know there's so much and it's enjoyable too like you know it's such a great community we get to do really fun things we go to festivals gigs markets like it's mm-hmm. it's something that i i i think people often think like it's so selfless but sometimes i think like i'm i'm getting more out of it than i'm giving like i should be paying you, <laughs> you know? like oh, okay. it's, yeah. I'm, I'm just so i'm so fascinated and so passionate for what the cause is that mm-hmm. um, it's the same with coast guards like i'm amazed that they give me all these qualifications for free because yeah. i just i just really happy to be there and i'm really enjoying it so yeah i think it's a when you really when you really invested in what the organization is doing it doesn't feel like it's hard work or you know like that sounds really cheesy but no, no, I, I, <laughs> you know what i mean like i feel like i'm grateful for the opportunity if, if anything yeah yeah when you put yourself out there things i know what you're saying things fall in line and i think it's mm. just a natural cause and effect if you're around the right people and around the right environment then you will be having fun and you will be doing things Mm. you enjoy so that's it yeah totally um so with the first campaign with sea shepherd you went to antarctica was that your first time seeing antarctica and what was that like yeah for sure never never actually ever imagined that i would go there um so yeah i like i said it was all sort of a bit of a blur it happened quite quickly and all of a sudden we were setting sail i don't think i really stopped to think about it it was just like yeah off we go um it took us a couple of weeks to get down there and then all of a sudden it was like icebergs everywhere and um you know sheets of ice on the water and we saw um is it aurora australis the Mm -hmm. southern lights you know on the way down and there was whales every day and penguins and it was just this magical completely unspoiled place it's apparently it's also the biggest desert on the planet in terms of the lack of rainfall there which i Mm -hmm. also didn't know i was imagining it would be snowstorms every day like we did have some snow but mostly it was beautiful bright skies you know sun but cold obviously but like crisp and dry and just like the most stunning icebergs that I, just, I don't think I even stopped to think about it before I went you know it was just like oh we're going cool off we go um and then yeah it was just probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my entire life you know just um, so fortunate to go yeah and was the campaign uh in Antarctica what were you aiming to do with Sea Shepherd was it against krill fishing was it against uh, illegal whaling? What was the sort of spearhead and the the point for the the first initial campaign you were doing there? Yeah, so it's probably the one that Sea Shepherd is the most famous for. It's the anti-illegal whaling. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fleets of whalers that come down from Japan. Um, they're very well known. I was the thirteenth year that they have been going to Antarctica, so it's, it's a very well established campaign. And the main goal is to try and find the fleets, which is what takes up most of the time. Um, And then once we find the fleet, to just try to prevent them from whaling in any way that we can. So over the years, there's been some really dramatic footage of altercations between the two fleets. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, they are government funded. They take their own refueling vessels. Um, you might have seen some footage of like one of our captains very amazingly positioned a Sea Shepherd vessel between their refueling vessel and one of their vessels so they couldn't refuel um, and held that position for like three days whilst being, you know, p- pummeled with water cannons and stuff. So really 
intense um, kind of clashes at sea. But, you know, other times we've maneuvered our vessels over the slipways of the factory vessels so that they can't bring the whales on board to process them. So just anything that we can do that's, you know, non-violent, but that will hamper the proceedings. But yeah, they're, they're government funded. They've got their own refueling vessel and they've got all this like, you know, amazing technology. So it's a real like David and Goliath type request. Yeah. We're just one, one knackered old ship from, you know, 45 years ago, trying, full of volunteers just trying to find the fleet. So that in itself is a huge <laughs> yeah. undertaking. It's like the um, ragtag A-team that like, yeah, it's like the, the call in the, what's that Captain Planet or something, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, that's... Just, a, just a bunch of old hippies like yeah. around trying to find them, do what we can. So That's amazing, um, though. Yeah, so I was amazed that we find them. We take a helicopter as well, so we fly the helicopter off, off the back deck. So pretty, like, impressive maneuvers considering we're a voluntary organization. I think the only other maritime group to do that is that would be the Navy because we launch small boats and helicopters off our vessels whilst we're moving. Um, but, yeah, we, we it took a long time, I think maybe a month and a half, um, and eventually, we did manage to find the whaling fleet, uh, which was which was incredible. Um, but our vessel, I went down on the Stevo, and she's she's an old ship, and our top speed was like I don't know, 15 knots or something. And their vessel's a lot faster. So once we found them, we were able to catch them with whales on their factory vessel, the Nishinmaru. Um, and that photograph, you know, went global. That's that's the best piece of kind of weaponry, if you will, that we have is is taking photographs and showing the world what's happening, the illegal whaling in, in areas where they're not supposed to be even fishing. Um, and for some reason, bizarrely, I mean, I think they're fairly used to us being around now, but they, you know, they're used to us having helicopters and taking photographs. This campaign, they randomly put a tarpaulin over the whale and just tried to make it look like there wasn't a whale there. But then what they had was like a whale-shaped tarp on their deck. So it was oh, like... God couldn't have looked any more guilty really but that was one of it's, our most shared yeah. photographs from campaign yeah that went viral around the world so it's almost um, like putting the white sheet and then closing the eyes you know and then yeah. wheeling <laughs> it off on a stretcher that's it nothing yeah. to see here this whale-shaped top on so yeah so but then unfortunately once um you know once we had they knew that we were nearby um what happened was one of the harpoon vessels one of the yoshimaru which are the ones that go and actually catch the whales it would then tail our vessel because they were faster than us. So it would just follow us around and then it could constantly, um, you know, radio our coordinates to their main factory vessel. Oh, and so that's annoying. We, yeah. So we, but we knew that was always, that was always our tactic. Like mm -hmm. we knew that we were never going to catch up with the Nishimaru. We had Ocean Warriors, another vessel with us, which is a very much faster vessel. So they went off after Nishin. And our job basically was to try and keep the Yushin with us because however long it's tailing us, uh, it's not catching whales. So just by the fact that they're following yeah, us. Yeah. yeah, so we got them to chase us. We, we went quite a long way um, west. I think we almost got as far as beneath Africa, actually. Um, and then we did various things because we were running out of fuel. So we had various tricks to to make them stay with us and pretend that we had a few fires and things like that um, to keep them on our tail. And then eventually we had to go back to refuel. We went to um, New Zealand to refuel um, and they followed us all the way up to pretty much the border with the New Zealand waters. So we managed to keep them out of whaling for quite a long time. But we knew for us that it was kind of game over at that point. But, our, you know, our role then was to just keep the ocean with us and stop them from catching whales, So, which we did whilst we were there. But unfortunately, you know, both of our ships ran out of fuel eventually. And then after we had left the area, I think they then went on and got their quota. 
for the year. So it wasn't the most successful campaign. But like I said, it's, you know, David and Goliath type situation. So we were happy to do what we could. But it was actually the last campaign to Antarctica. And I think um, the stance is now that it's really the government's responsibility to um, police that or to enforce higher sanctions. You know, it's been ruled illegal in The Hague, and yet still there seems to be no accountability for the clearly documented whales that we catch on their, you know, photograph on their decks every year. So um, I think in terms of the the amount of money that Sea Shepherd was investing in that campaign versus the results, I think, um, you know, we've sort of focused on other areas where we can get better return for the money that we're putting in and also try and work more collaboratively alongside local governments instead of kind of us just going in there and... Um, that's maybe where Sea Shepherd originated from with Paul Watson back in the 70s and just kind of one guy with a boat just going and trying to cause havoc. Whereas we're now such a big global organization and um, I think we want to work more closely with local governments to help them enforce laws in their own waters rather than us just kind of going in there and um, doing it on our own kind of thing. So that was the last time that they went to Antarctica. So that was, yeah, 2017 and we got back. So I don't know if we'll go back again, but I think totally. we're just concentrating our efforts on other things for now. Yeah. I think the Sea Shepherd and even the Antarctic campaign, even if it has taken a, a step and is sort of on the back burner at the moment, it's still so a part of the collective psyche and almost like conservation pop culture in Australia. It's I think everyone knows about Sea Shepherd in, yeah. in in my generation anyway, well, almost everyone and almost everyone I would say again has that awareness now because of campaigns like Sea Shepherd and, and yeah. sorry sorry has that awareness about whaling because of campaigns by Sea Shepherd. And, well, yeah, I think so, Whale Wars did a lot for that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Animal Planet's Whale Wars uh, definitely thrust us into the limelight, so that's um, it was helpful for sure. Yeah, it's it seems like it. I couldn't even imagine how that would <laughs> what a changing of experience from going from on, being on land to then getting tailed by whaling ships and chasing whaling ships and yeah. icebergs, penguins. It, it does seem quite dramatic and almost movie-like, but in, in a sense it is a movie, but it's a documentary. It's it's reality yeah. and it's, it's tangible and it's real. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it was, I think, like I said, I think I didn't really consider it at length, but since I got back, and actually, do you know what? You just reminded me, somebody said that to me uh, right back at the beginning. They said to me, you won't realise what you've done until you get back. Because mm. when you're in the moment, you're just like, yeah, I'm doing my job. Okay, we've got to launch small boats. Yeah, great. Off the helicopter. Did you find them? Yeah, cool. Here's the pictures. You know, you're just doing it. It's mm. only when you get back and you're like, whoa, that was like, that was really intense and was, you know, really effective or really cool or whatever it is that has happened on campaign. You know, some of the, the, the highest highs and some of the lowest lows I think I've ever experienced, uh, you know, have happened on that campaign. It's so intense. You with Well, on that particular campaign, there was 36 of us, I think, but I've been on other ships since where there's been like 12 of us you know you, you're 24-7 around your crewmates they're your mm. your friends your family your after work your work colleagues that it it just is such a totally unique experience that I don't think I really understood what I was getting into until I'd gone and then afterwards you're like wow okay yeah that was huge and what we achieved was huge and I never expected that I would be so lucky to to be able to get involved with something like that yeah yeah, you've just touched on something really, really cool. I, when you mentioned the highs and lows, and also the the um this the reality or the sinking in factor that happens. I've had a similar thing when I've come back from travels and I've gone back through photos, and I'm always appreciative and trying my best to live in the moment when I travel. But for, Nepal is a great example. Like I would look back at photos and be like, "Wow, was I really sitting in that 
person's house like up in the mountains cooking tea over a fire yeah it seems unreal when you look back at it because now you're you know you're back in the humdrum with you flick a light switch and the light's on and you you turn the shower and there's hot water and I boil the kettle whereas when you're up in the mountains in these towns you're boiling water and there's no hot shower and there is no power it's candles and they're still like using a bamboo cane to you know smack the yak and be like hey hey like (laughs) everything is just so unreal but then when you come back and you look back at it you you can't you almost can't fathom that that you live through that as well yeah 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 that's it and like the camaraderie like you know in antarctica obviously we you know we had a lot of crew to shower and i think it was the standard was like a three minute shower every three days but then when we were yeah. true hippies but then, which, I love to it. be fair in antarctica you, you don't sweat much so it's fine <laughs> yeah. um okay but then you know like it, our water supplies started to run out or we had a problem with something or other and it got down to i think it was like two minute showers every five days and our desalinator broke and we were having to boil water and drink that you know but like the camaraderie in that and like everybody's kind of keeping each other up and like we you know as much as we were working hard we still you know played silly games in the evening or um you know we celebrated robert burns night and had like a band play and we celebrated new year's you know just small like really unique memories that you couldn't create and no one really would understand unless they've ever been in that situation because they're so intense and so specific um and that's what I mean about like I'm just so grateful for the opportunity not only that I get to be involved in ocean conservation but like those small tiny weird little memories of things that happen that just mm-hmm. uh are just worth so much to me or to you know to everyone who, who gets the opportunity to do things like that like he said in Nepal you know those little memories no one will know what that yeah felt like unless they were actually there it's so unique yeah yeah and sometimes even we ourselves almost forget what it feels like unless we try and tap back in and and really like concentrate and try and remember like the smells the sounds the feels as well that's it um yeah you're talking about highs and lows if you don't mind you know sifting through the weeds and getting into the nitty-gritty what are sort of some of the lows on these campaigns is it hard to keep your emotions in check when you're seeing something that's you know, pretty gut-wrenching, such as whaling? Is it lows as in not being able to have creature comforts? Is it lows as in um, seeing those people around you get upset and having to be stronger for them? What what for you felt like um, the highs and lows? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, so well, probably most of those things you touched on. Like, I think for me, um, it's, it's weird because each campaign is different like so with antarctica mm-hmm. it was mostly like amazing moments where we saw whales like there was a time we had to cut the engines and we were running out of fuel and uh, two humpbacks came to our boat and just stayed with us for about an hour and they were like literally a meter away from us and they were like li- staring at us like just so curious and i think they were juvenile but you know that's one wow. of the most incredible memories i'll ever ever have you know moments like that but then the lows of that campaign was that um, every day we would go out searching for the whaling fleet and every day we would launch the small boat so that we could launch the helicopter because every time we launched a helicopter, the small boat had to be in the water in case it didn't land properly and we had to go after it. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so, and we would do like two, maybe three helicopter searches a day. And for weeks on end, that was all that we were doing, just launching. And then everyone's holding their breath and we wait for the helicopter to come back and you see the look on the pilot's eye and you know he's not found them and you just think so so sad like and, and the the cumulative effect of that mm. was just so frustrating every time the helicopter landed the first question did we find it did you find it no okay all right we'll try tomorrow you know yeah, and, yeah. and that that really wore us 
down you know that that sort of, and then but then the joy of the one day they came back and was like yeah we found them yeah we took pictures you know it was just elation everyone was screaming like yeah so it just it gives me goosebumps even thinking about it but you know that so that was so sort of antarctica but the campaign that i've done a bit more of um in mexico that was way more confronting way quicker because on that campaign we're removing nets from the ocean that have been sat there for a while and would just have you know, up to 50 dead animals in it. So like day one, I'm pulling in these nets that have rotten, putrid animals. And it could be everything from fish through to sea lions, birds, rays, millions of crabs, everything. And you're just so, so surrounded with the mass death that these Mm. nets are creating that it was like, but you didn't get a chance to sit and be sad. Everyone was just getting on with their job, pulling the nets in, chopping them up, destroying them, get rid of the dead bodies. Occasionally we get a few live ones. Great. We let that one go back in the ocean and everyone would rejoice. But the the mass of death there was just huge. And, um, but yeah, it was just like get in, get on with it, do your job. And I don't remember getting... Sorry, go on. No, I, I really hate to interject. I was just going to say, like, I guess to really strip it down to the basics and the bare bones, the highs and lows from, like, my point of view right now, it sounds like you're seeing both the best and the worst of humanity, quite sadly, because you're seeing, like, a crew yeah. who is putting the time and effort and the love into, yeah. you know, volunteering and switching back to what we are saying before about being on land and having putting in the time with no end goal in sight to actually getting on campaign to now you're on campaign the helicopter's going out you don't know if it's going to come back with a result you're still hanging on it's tooth and nail and then you've got this crew this ragtag crew who is giving their all um and really putting you know absolutely 100 percent effort into into what they believe in and their passion so there, there you're seeing the best of humanity but then you're chasing boats yeah. and whaling fleets and pulling up nets and you're, you're seeing the worst of humanity and that's, yeah, it's it's such like a contradiction. It, you're sort of living through two extremes at once. Whereas yeah. in, in the day to day life, we're way we're way more baseline. We don't have as much tweak in either direction, so we're not having to like keep our emotions in such control. But yeah, I can't even imagine. Absolutely. That yeah. Yeah, you're right. And because like that's what another amazing part of going on these campaigns is that you just meet just the most incredible humans doing awesome. You know, there's loads of sea shepherds who also work with Sea Watch and other. Um, humanitarian efforts in the Mediterranean, rescuing um, people fleeing from Africa, trying to get into Europe. You know, there's so many diverse things that are going on and you, you find out from, all, like you said, there's just the best of humanity. People, they're just really giving up their lives to for altruistic causes and you get to hear about it and be around these people. But then, yeah, you're in the face of the other end of the spectrum, the, the illegal fishing, the poach. Because, you know, it's not about, it's you know, it's, it's about greed, isn't it? It's about like human greed. And that's what mm-hmm. that's what's driving all of these things. Um, and, and you're sort of there surrounded by these incredible humans who have like the least greed on the planet versus mm-hmm. all these other humans who just want to, who just want to make money and don't care about the implications for the planet and things like that so yeah you hit the nail on the head there like the, the um juxtaposition between the two is mm-hmm. just uh, yeah a lot can i ask <laughs> um can i ask a personal question like do you sure. um do you feel any animosity towards the people you see whaling or fishing or do you like do you try and take it as like uh, you understand that maybe these people are just skewed in their view and, and deep down they're not evil or they're not bad or like how do you view the people you're trying to <clears throat> you're trying to stop from doing these actions if you don't mind me asking because that's something that I always try and personally um, if I find something that I disagree with or 
someone that I might not share political views with or um, values with or whatever, I really try and break bread with them anyway. And I try and, do you know what I mean? And I try and think, well, I'm not perfect. And um, maybe there's flaws (laughs) that I have that they're like, hey, man, you shouldn't have um, done X, Y, Z. Or, hey, man, you, um, you know, you flew twice last year and that was burning more emissions than I was or you know so I is that something that you have struggled with or is that something like what what yeah um, it it is interesting because it yeah yeah, it's a a fine line isn't it between like I think um yeah no I I totally agree with what you're saying because like none of us are perfect and even just the fact that I've been flying around doing these campaigns yeah for sure like my carbon footprint is not ideal and there's definitely things that I could be doing to live my life in a more environmental way Um, me too me too but I I think that like, uh, yeah, and I understand, I understand culturally that there could be different stances. I I do understand that. I know we come up against this a lot in, um, in Faroes Island because they have the the grind there or the grind or whatever, where they drive all the whales in and and kill them. And same like Taji in Japan. Like I understand that there could be different cultural angles, but I don't obviously agree that they're still appropriate um, or that they're still even uh, in line with what the original angle was. So, like, for example, in the Pharaohs there, you know, the Vikings may well have had to go out and herd up a, a, a round of whales to to keep them fed throughout the winter. But these days you don't need to rely on that as a food source and they would have been using rowboats, whereas now they're using um, motorboats with sonar and stuff. So it's not really a fair yeah. match in that way. It's still not sticking to those original reasons why these things happened. And I understand that... Um, That's a really the, pragmatic view to have, yeah. I yeah, I understand that in Japan, there's a, you know, there's a kind of pride with the whaling fleet. I understand that there's, uh, um, it's seen as a, an important job. I just don't think that that has a place in this modern world. I don't think we need to eat whales, and I don't think that people should be pursuing that. So, yes, you can have a, a good. Uh, high standard or high esteem like maritime job but it doesn't have to be in whaling so no I don't I don't feel sort of sympathy towards those people because I don't believe that they're forced into this role mm-hmm. it gets a bit more complex when you have things like the the big um, illegal fishing uh, fleets that often come from places like China mm-hmm. um, and actually Spain as well have a lot of like criminal fishing vessels and the guys up top who actually run these outfits are absolutely not good people and i have no sympathy towards them they know exactly what they're doing um but a lot of the workers that come onto these ships are human trafficked out of places like uh, Myanmar and other places in asia and they get promised work and they they want to go and make money for their family and then they get stuck on these ships for years sometimes or never come back and there's a famous one, I'm sure Alistair would have talked to you about it with um, Icefish, where we intercepted a vessel that was fishing illegally in Antarctica. And we ended up having, well, they in the end sank their own vessel because they couldn't get oh, away from it. Oh, he did mention this. Yeah, they ran it aground. They scuttled their own boat. and They scuttled their own ship. And yeah. by maritime law, you have to take on their crew because they've called a mayday. So then the Sea Shepherd vessels had to take on board the crews of this illegal fishing vessel that we've been chasing for a really long time awkward um but most of the crews were from indonesia and they were actually grateful to get off the ship you know they're kept in pretty much squalor they are treated like slaves and sea shepherd you know paid for them all to go back to indonesia so they could um 
you know, get mm-hmm. get off the ship. So yeah. those guys, of course, I have sympathy for them. They're just trying to get a job, and yeah. um, you know, they they get promised things that aren't on uh, that don't get in the end, and they get treated abhorrently. So yeah, it it's... really depends. You know, it's same in Mexico. There's cartel who are pushing the poaching. Those guys are the bad guys. Um, but really, I suppose if you follow that through to the nth degree, the reason they're doing it is because of supply and demand. So it's the people who are purchasing yeah, these, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever exactly. random animals that are going extinct that are driving the industry that then becomes very corrupt. You know, I don't know. So it's diff- it's kind of no, no, a yeah, grey area. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, some the world is just so don't have don't have good good intentions and those people I definitely don't feel any sympathy towards. <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. The world is so interconnected now. It's it's. Yeah, it's like yeah, supply and demand is such a, a, a an interesting talking point for me because it's in some ways I hold like a con- conflicting values or co- contradictions or cognitive dissonance, whatever you want to call it or label it. Because let's say, for example, I know that um, petrol companies or gas companies are you know, extracting oil and and purifying it. But then there's been times when I've still driven a car and put in a full tank of gas. And I think, am I I endorsing Shell or BP or other Mm. companies by buying their product? Or, you know, what if I use the full tank of fuel that I've put in my car to drive to a activism campaign? So is it, is it, is a, you know, the good outweighing the bad, but I really value that you see the humanity and um, yeah, these crew members and it, it was making me think about, have you heard about in Dubai how they have um, a similar thing with Filipino workers building the skyscrapers? They're pretty much indentured to their their, yeah, work, right. their careers. Have you heard much about that? Or? I haven't, but I can completely yeah. imagine like slavery. I think everyone Almost, thinks we've abolished yeah. slavery, but it's really quite prevalent in lots of industries. But yeah, go on, what's happening in, in Dubai then? Oh, I guess it, it just sounded similar to what you were saying, mm. describing with the workers in um, these fishing vessels. They They go wanting and getting sort of promised a better life and better wages and, and all this yeah. kind of thing. And they end up in Dubai and they get their passport taken off them. Like yeah. they, the employers say, hey, let us keep your passport for safekeeping. And then they just stuck there and st- yeah. stuck having to work. And, um, it's terrible, yeah. yeah. Um, the New York Times did uh, an expose on this a few years ago. And I don't want to misquote the figures, but it was mm-hmm. like breathtaking. Because one of the things that happens when you go on a boat, I mean, and this is standard practice. Anyone who goes on a boat, the captain takes your passport because they're responsible for you. And until you dock and you go through immigration, then they have to, you know, so that's standard. But so these guys that are taken out of Asia or wherever they come from, they, they hand over their passports. So a lot of them are, you know, not not necessarily known. Or some of them, I don't even know whether they would have passports. But, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. So the New York Times did a, a report and they estimated, I don't want to misquote it, but basically if you're working on one of these vessels and you become sick or say you fall and break your arm you're of no use to the captains they can just chuck you overboard and there's no trace because you're in antarctica or wherever and it was really chocolate like, I think like ten thousand people unaccounted for in the last i don't know 13 years that they've been exposed or whatever like I, I, can't, I can't remember the stats but it was a crazy crazy amount of people that just go missing oh um God. and then because they're just they just chuck them overboard that so, is insane yeah, that kind of stuff is happening. And that's why, you know, I think people, when they think about Sea Shepherd, oh, yeah, we're saving the whales, whatever. This is, that's the fishing industry. That's not like, um, you know, specific manta ray fishing or whatever. That's like just the everyday fish that you get in the supermarket, tuna fishing, whatever. These organizations are so concerned about making as much money as possible mm. that, that, that when you go to the supermarket and you buy that fish, you don't think about it. You don't realize that, like, probably even human lives 
have been sacrificed for you to eat that fish like that's that's where it gets really dark and um and i think like going back to what we're saying about like sea shepherd kind of starting that fire like th- those were the things that i was exposed to that was like well this is out of control and people just don't know yeah to what extent it is yeah because we're just so used to like go to the supermarket like it's prawns from thailand don't think about where they've come from don't think about what the sacrifices are for that or like there's tuna fish in the can like it's just convenience over consciousness which is not my tagline that's somebody else's but it's a great one like that's you know we're just so used to having a convenient a convenient life that we sacrifice oh my goodness yeah literal humans in, a, that. in australia where I, I absolutely love australia you know we've we've done incredible things to help um you know boost our quality of life and we've made a lot of mistakes along the way and i'm so grateful though to be able to have been born and I, I i feel like australia has, has had so much for me anyway like given imparted upon me so many lessons and it gave me a free education and i'm I have free access to yeah. health healthcare here and but but living here is comfortable it really is and it's mm. and you can easily fall into like you know anyone can get um in my opinion a, a pretty well paying job if they try hard enough there's opportunity and there's um you know there's food on the table we produce yeah. a, we produce a surplus of um food we're one of the few countries that produces more food than we consume so little things like that you know we've got money coming in from mining and we've got a strong economy yeah. and we've got a triple a rating on the global you know all these things that we just almost yeah. take for granted and i'm sort of going on a tangent here but what i'm kind of getting at is when you talk about the the cost of convenience and the price of fish and the lives behind it something that i found traveling as well is um we are so fortunate and so sometimes comfortable here in australia we forget the true hardship and the true pain and suffering yeah. that some countries and some people are going through like the refugee crisis is a great example like i i really think me personally i still don't really understand how insane it must be to pack up your entire life course, in, into yeah. just a suitcase and risk everything to go across borders across oceans yeah to try and start a new life like i think trying to sympathize with that as an australian um we might we we're sort of a bit detached from that and and going back totally. to going back to what you were saying about fishermen being p- potentially thrown overboard i couldn't even imagine how hard it would be to be someone from let's say a a rural setting where you're making next to no money you get this opportunity to go on a fishing boat you might not even have a passport and yeah. then you're just voiceless you end up in yeah. a, you end up in a situation where you're on a boat you can be disposed of you don't have a passport you're unknown to anyone your family doesn't know who you are you might not be able to contact them like that situation would almost never happen to an australian within australia if that makes sense because we have terrifying yeah totally yeah. terrifying yeah which is you... sad because it's almost like people aren't given the same human rights just because of where they're born absolutely yeah, absolutely. Um, the, yeah, the, there was a really stark example of that in one of our campaigns that happened, I think, last year um, in the Galapagos. Uh, so we had a bunch of vessels out there looking at them. Um, there was a lot of squid fishing that was happening there. And um, the Sea Shepherd vessels were going up to a lot of uh, the, the illegal vessels operating in that area. And at one stage, they actually spoke to some of the crew and they shouted over to them, now this was let me get this right this was june of 2021 and i believe although you can find fact check it all online i believe that it was a chinese crew but the crew member shout over and said has covid left china has covid got to america and 
they so they had been on this vessel presumably since pre-covid which would have been what 2019 i guess and had no idea that covid had even got as to the global levels that it had like that just shows you know this life that they lead just oh, so cut off so so separated so denied exactly human rights of like a lot of people end up on these vessels for like eight years because the vessels won't go to port most of them are wanted illegally um so they would like offload their catch and then just sail off somewhere else so these guys just literally get trapped on board for eight nine years indefinitely who that knows like it's mad isn't it yeah that's insane. I'm going to have to look more into this because this is incredible. And the other thing that's coming to mind is like sanitation, health, like these these guys and girls and whoever's on these boats, like where are they dumping their rubbish? Probably overboard. Where are they, you know, where are they dumping their ballast and their sewage? Yeah. Probably within yeah. pristine environment or totally. within parts of the ocean that they're fishing. So it's it's a whole conglomerate of issues, I guess. It's not just... Totally, because it's yeah. unpoliceable. The oceans are so vast. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, you can't get away with dumping a big load of oil on the ground in most places in the world because someone's going to see it and, and call you out for it. But in the oceans, you know, you can do whatever the hell you want. There's really no one there. Um, wow. Which is extremely problematic. I mean, you, you'd be surprised. Like, the Antarctica trip was, you know, absolutely pristine. But, yeah, we still bumped into trash. Like, mm. there was still, you know, big fuel containers, uh, a, a mis- like a big massive boy that had gone off the side of a boat. Like, we st- and we stopped and we picked stuff up. But, like, even in Antarctica, you'd think we'd just be absolutely untouched. There's still trash down there. Wow. It's, yeah, sad. So transitioning now into you've, you've, um, you're still active within Sea mm-hmm. Shepherd um, and you've come back and joined the Coast Guard what are some of the the experiences with the Coast Guard that you've been grateful for and and some you were saying before that you were getting real real world qualifications in the maritime mm. industry. Do you mind glossing over some of those qualifications and and how some of the Coast Guard has played out for you? Yeah, yeah. So, um yeah, so well, I just wanted to carry on keeping up my my skills, but the Coast Guard have a really good um sort of training program. Um, that you can progress through at any speed, depending on how you know how quickly you want to go through it. But it goes from basically just uh, being on the boat and understanding, you know, uh, the way that the boat works to, you know, I've done radio qualifications, I've got basic seamanship skills, um, mm-hmm. fighting fires, all those kind of things. It gets you up to competent crew level, which is where I'm at at the minute. So now I'm at a level where I'm able to do actual live call outs. So when you first start training, you're just kind of an additional on the boat, you will always have the skipper and the competent crew member who um, is kind of like second in command, does a lot of the sort of navigation and coordination when dealing with call outs and would be able, would be competent enough to step in if for some reason something happened to the skipper, if they had a heart attack, whatever, your competent crew member could in theory take the helm and, and complete the job or whatever. Um, but yeah, so that's the level that I'm at now. And then eventually I will get my coxswain certificate. So that's master of a vessel up to 12 meters um and yeah they support you through all of the training for that um, get your sea, sea hours up and eventually i'll be um yeah so I, i'm at the level where i can go on call outs and eventually i'll be the skipper so the the person who's making all the decisions and like how we're going to recover this vessel you know we we do a lot of recovery we're like roadside recovery on mm-hmm. the ocean basically <laughs> so yeah. if your boat's broken down we'll come get you but then, then there's also you know we do search and rescue so there's been times where we've had divers missing um all the coast guard boats will go out and the police helicopters and we'll be involved in search patterns mm-hmm. looking for them you know we had a snorkeler go missing at alternate like various things like that so it can get quite intense the work that we do get involved with um but yeah they won't i mean i won't take my um i won't take my certificate until i'm ready and 
I probably, if I had, if it hadn't have been COVID, I probably would be there now. Um, but it's been a bit stop start over the last couple of years, and I feel like I definitely want to spend some more time consolidating my skills before you get to that level because there's a lot of responsibility you know Absolutely, as a skipper, yeah. you're more responsible for everyone and anyone who makes a mistake as the captain it's on your shoulders so yeah. definitely not going to take that final exam until i feel ready but again super grateful that they've put in so much time all of our skippers they they're so generous with their knowledge they just want you to get up to skipper level as well and um you know these guys go out every weekend and spend eight hours a day just drilling stuff into me about you know like how to navigate the areas nighttime you know all that kind of stuff they're very very generous with their time Absolutely. as well and, and i think that's a really nice environment to be in to feel so supported to get to that level so that we have you know lots of competent crews and lots of skippers out there able to respond quickly i suppose yeah, yeah. it seems like you've got a bit of foresight in terms of what knowing what is the demand of being a skipper especially for the safety of the crew safety of the vessel safety of who you're rescuing um yeah. because you've got hindsight you know what i mean you've got yeah. that real world experience so it's, i think they're both going it seems to me like both things are going hand to hand and you've got that sensible approach i think that's awesome that you want to actually take the time to yeah not rushing into a role like that is is really critical um yeah touching definitely. on um daughters of the deep sorry it's just we've got like 10 minutes left and yeah, i'm still so interested fine. to talk yeah. to daughters of the deep um so for anyone who might be listening daughters of the deep is as you said right at the start it's six months old uh it's it's just up and running you've got you've got plans for 2022 yeah and i think it's so cool it's such a niche idea to get women into as you said marine the marine industry so diving yeah. or conservation or science roles do you want to talk a little bit about how the idea for daughters of the deep came into foundation and and where do you see it going in 2022 yeah don't have to give too much away (laughs) yeah yeah um yeah so this was actually the the kind of um idea of a, a friend of mine who i literally just met traveling you know years ago and this is i guess one of the positives of social media i met mm-hmm. him on a we took a boat trip from uh, panama to colombia in like 2012 um you know but oh, stayed through, through sandblast yeah. Through the sandblast, oh yeah, yeah right. okay. I've sold sandblast as well. Incredible. You've done that one. Yeah. Oh, oh, beautiful. Yeah, and you know, I met this guy. Well, there's three English guys. One of them was George, and you know he was a dive master, and you know it's probably where I first started getting interested in diving and talking to him. And we just stayed friends on social media, and like he went down his own path into setting up his own dive schools. Um, so he's got a few. They're called Conservation Diver around the world. And I think it was when he was working in Nicaragua, he just recognised that there were a lot of local women who were like really interested and curious. They were doing um, a lot of reef. Uh, propagation work and turtle conservation and stuff like that and i think he's just realized that were maybe that women weren't necessarily financially supported to consider that a career or culturally um backed or you know had the sort of social backing or economic backing i suppose to to get into but that's like a really huge untapped resource of of these women who would be fantastic in that role so Mm -hmm. i think that's where his original idea came from but yeah earlier in 2021 he approached myself and a couple of others um we've got l over in wa and gg in uh portugal no spain um and he's just pulled us all together to kind of launch this idea so that's where it started from was Mm -hmm. just maybe I think we thought we would just get women to do their dive certs. We'd fund them to do their diving certs so that they could get into diving conservation. But it's just grown really organically. And I love the direction we've gone in, which is really just kind of looking at 
gender inequality or gender bias across all the marine. I mean, obviously, gender inequality is prevalent in all industries, but focusing on marine industries. So it's kind of grown now to um, we're looking at uh, maybe women who were overlooked for grants for science research and trying to fund help fund some of their research papers um or you know we're kind of showcasing women doing things that you wouldn't expect so captains working um in, in you know so like for example i might interview some of our sea shepherd captains and just talk to them about what was your sort of career tra- trajectory to try and sort of inspire other women to see mm. that as a valid career so that we can have more women captains or um you know there's there's obviously lots of projects that are happening around the world where we can hopefully sponsor women we've we sponsored a girl in madagascar to go to school last year with some of the funds that we raised oh, that's amazing yeah so that was one of our biggest well our first initiative and one of our biggest achievements so she's now fully funded to attend high school because she wants to become a marine biologist um, and so with the money that we raised she's now able because she was living um, just with a granddad and he wasn't able to afford her fees so doors of the deep have sponsored her so now she's going to go on um, and in collaboration with another organization over there mrci so those guys are probably going to give her an internship so that she can then go on and have a career um, in conservation so that's kind of where we're headed is more just that we're looking at getting the fundraising and finding those opportunities um, and then uh, organizations who are on the ground so we've got projects coming up in we're looking at indonesia we're looking at sponsoring someone in thailand mm. potentially nicaragua like there's quite a few places where we're looking at um, organizations on the ground who are there because i think we had hoped that maybe we might be able to sort of set up doors of the deep dive schools or whatever but i think the reality is there are people in the field who have those connections with the community and um, we're talking to sea women of melanesia like various places where there's already people on the ground doing that work and again like enabling local people to then go and train the local communities rather than us just going in there and saying like hey this is what you should do you know that kind of yeah. savior complex um so we're looking at being we the four of us are the core fundraisers um, and we have another amazing woman heather in canada who's just joined us recently so we'll be kind of like raising the money and then we're looking to fund organizations on the ground level to to be able to do more kind of sponsorships or um scholarships i suppose um to get more women involved yeah there really shouldn't be a stigma around women in marine industries or marine sports diving is such a great example because it takes discipline it takes finesse it takes care it, it takes style um and it also takes a bit of compassion if you want to go down the conservation route which that yeah. has no gender, you know what I mean? That doesn't have yeah. to be specified to a male or it doesn't have to be attached to strength or anything, you know, diving yeah. and conservation and loving the, having a passion for the ocean or a passion for what you do is like, yeah, break, breaking down that barrier is, is awesome and it shouldn't, um, yeah, it shouldn't really be such a hurdle as it, as it seems to be, but that's so know, cool. That's yeah. so, so it's, epic. It's, it's been eye-opening because, you know, I, as a diver myself and, and working in the dive industry, as I did in Melbourne for a while, like, I've never really felt that that particularly hard. But then as we've gone into this, we've been interviewing more and more people. I think, like, you know, general diving is maybe seen fairly equitable, although talking to a lot of dive schools here in Melbourne, it does seem to be slanted more towards male-dominated industry. But mm. definitely when you get into, like, commercial diving, you know, diving on oil rigs and that kind of stuff, that is definitely very much more a male-dominated industry and um you know just trying to like unpick the reasons why that might be the case you know because like you said there shouldn't be any barriers there in terms of gender in terms of 
wanting to be compassionate if you're going down conservation or just the industry itself shouldn't be gender but yet somehow it is so it's a really interesting kind of project like looking into the reasons and the barriers and we do lots of interviews and hearing stories um you know some really great some really sad around women's experiences uh, working in that field and trying to just expose that a bit more and open up that conversation a bit more and make people think about that a little bit more I guess like um you know uh, it shouldn't it shouldn't be surprising that it's a female captain. It's just the captain of a ship. You know? Yeah, exactly. Or it shouldn't be like, oh, we've got a female, or we've got a female, um, you know, uh, commercial diver on our team. Like that shouldn't be, that shouldn't that that old adage shouldn't be there. It's just we've got a team of commercial divers. That's yeah, it. totally. Just go. Just it's all about ex- experience based. Like you know, mm. if, if they've got the they've got the gusto and they've got the skills, it shouldn't it really shouldn't really matter at all. It's right. uh, Yeah. Epic. Well, oh my goodness. I'm excited to see what 2022 has in store for you for, yeah, for both the Sea you. Shepherd and for Daughters of the Deep <laughs> and for the Coast Guard and for speech pathology. Um, yeah, it's incredible. I, I think you've chosen such a cool trajectory and it seems to be, as you said, right at the start, snowballing and who knows which yeah. which direction that's going to go in uh, sure. in the well, future. Thank you. Thanks for um, yeah g- giving the time to, to hear, hear some of the stories and share some of the information. That's really um, generous to share that platform with us and I definitely thought of the deep we're very excited for where this is going and to have our name out there so thanks for giving us a little help in that direction no worries yeah it's been, <laughs> I, look I've been I'm always stoked to talk about stuff like this I feel like I still have a bajillion questions I have a word document on my phone with some questions I had written <laughs> I'd wanted to ask you but it's um we're, we've run out of time now but um All good I All can good. leave a link to Daughters of the Deep uh within the description of the Thank podcast you. I'll also leave a link for the Sea Shepherd Australia for anyone who's interested in that Perfect. and potentially um a little bio about you yourself and the the work you've done so yeah, no, thank you so much for coming on. I actually would love to potentially have uh, another chat with you in the, you know, in the, sure, co- in the coming, part two. coming year. Yeah. Give you an update. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'll, I need the new, the new highs and lows of 2022. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been, um, I, you know, it's, it, it's a passion I could waffle on about for days. So thanks for allowing me to indulge that. <laughs>